Welcome to today's Law of Self-Defense ongoing coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Today was the ninth day of the trial by which Assistant DA Thomas Binger is seeking to have Kyle Rittenhouse convicted and sentenced to life in prison for having shot three men, two fatally, the night of August 25th, 2020 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when the city was suffering a tsunami of rioting, looting, and arson following the lawful shooting of a knife-wielding Jacob Blake by Kenosha police officers. Today, the parties argued over what instructions should be given to the jury for their use in deliberating the guilt, or not, of Kyle Rittenhouse on the criminal charges for which he's currently on trial. Naturally, the jury was not present for this discussion. The jury will return to court on Monday morning, at which point the judge will give them the final set of jury instructions. The state will present its closing argument. The defense will present its closing, and then the state will have a rebuttal argument. At that point, the jury will begin its deliberations, and I'll switch over to jury watch mode as we await a verdict. For today, however, I wanted to share the court's decisions on jury instructions, the jury instructions themselves, and some of the more important legal concepts to understand being applied in those instructions. But first, a big win for the prosecution. They've been saved by the judge allowing a jury instruction on the doctrine of provocation. So much of the day's argument over jury instructions centered on the instructions dealing with the legal doctrine of provocation. And that's because an attack through the doctrine of provocation is the only desperate hope the state has for overcoming Kyle's powerful claim of self-defense and obtaining convictions on the use of force charges against him. Of the six counts brought against Kyle Rittenhouse in this trial, five are use of force felonies. The other is the misdemeanor gun possession charge. To each of those felony charges, Kyle has raised the legal defense of self-defense. To convict on any of those, then, the state must disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. How might the state do this, given that it has introduced little, if any, evidence attacking the core elements of Kyle's self-defense? By attacking Kyle's claim of self-defense through the doctrine of provocation. I expect the state's central attack on Kyle's core legal defense of self-defense to come in the form of a narrative of either simple provocation or provocation with intent. Simple provocation occurs when the defendant engages in unlawful conduct likely to provoke a violent response. When that violent response occurs, the simple provoker cannot claim self-defense for resistance until they exhaust every possibility of avoiding the need to use force, including retreat, where a duty to retreat would not exist in an otherwise lawful act of self-defense under Wisconsin law. Provocation with intent occurs when the defendant deliberately provokes a violent response with the intent of then having an excuse to use deadly force against the person provoked. Importantly, the provoker with intent cannot regain self-defense by withdrawal and communication. On the other hand, the state must prove that malicious intent to provoke a response in order to have an excuse to use deadly force beyond a reasonable doubt. I expect the state's argument to the jury during closing arguments on Monday will be structured around this legal doctrine of provocation in one of those two forms. That's why the unicorn evidence of the drone video and the enhanced images from that video 
have been so important to the state and why they fought so hard to get them admitted into evidence. With that material in evidence, the state can at least argue provocation. Without that material in evidence, the state would have no substantive attack on self-defense at all. For example, the state may argue that Kyle was a simple provoker who committed an unlawful act by pointing his rifle at Joshua Zeminski, thus provoking a reasonably foreseeable violent response from Rosenbaum. Although Kyle then fled, the prosecution would argue that he could have fled further than he did and thus failed to exhaust every possible means of avoiding having to use defensive force. This would mean he had not regained the privilege of self-defense that he lost by his simple provocation. Alternatively, the prosecution may argue that Kyle was a provoker with intent when he purportedly pointed his rifle at Joshua Zeminski, seeking to provoke a violent response against which he would then have an excuse to use deadly force. Again, this pointing of the rifle did trigger a violent response from Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse, the state will say, then led the provoked Rosenbaum across the parking lot where Kyle ultimately acted on his intent to use Rosenbaum's provoked attack as an excuse to use deadly force on Rosenbaum. As a provoker with intent, the state will conclude the defendant's not privileged to justify his use of deadly force on Rosenbaum as justified self-defense, and no withdrawal argument can salvage self-defense for a provoker with intent. Now, one difficulty for the state arguing provocation with intent is that they have not charged Kyle with intentionally killing Rosenbaum, but only with recklessly killing him. Rationally, an argument of provocation with intent really only makes sense if the subsequent killing was intentional. But this is not an especially rational prosecution. Then the state will use the killing of Rosenbaum as a purported act of provocation with intent with respect to the attacks upon Kyle by jump kick man, Huber, Grosskreutz, attempting to strip him of the legal defense of self-defense for those uses of force as well. The defense argued sensibly that the evidence in support of the state's narrative of provocation, the unicorn drone video left by the evidence fairy on the state's doorstep last Friday, and the enhanced photos produced for the first time yesterday, were too flimsy a basis to support an argument of provocation. They pointed out the poor quality of the video and images and noted that for Kyle to be raising his rifle as the state claimed he would have had to suddenly decide for the first time that night to handle the rifle as if he were left-handed. Judge Schroeder essentially informed the state that he didn't think very much of the provocation evidence, noting how blurry and indecipherable the video and photos were for purposes of determining whether Kyle had pointed his rifle at Zeminski, as the state claimed. The judge even took the opportunity to review the state's video on a giant 4K television screen in the courtroom today and walked away from the TV without appearing to have seen much of what the state claimed. Again, however, this is a judge who values the role of the jury and who is predisposed to give more instructions rather than fewer, and ultimately he decided he would instruct the jury in the provocation doctrine, thus saving the state from a complete argumentative stasis. It will be the job of the defense now to argue against the state's expected narrative of provocation with intent to the jury during their own closing argument Monday morning. Monday is going to be a high-stakes day for certain, as closing arguments always are. This is where the win or loss will ultimately be realized. The biggest jury instruction win for the defense was on the misdemeanor gun possession charge, count six in the criminal complaint. 
The standard jury instruction for this charge would almost certainly have meant an automatic conviction for Kyle for reasons I explain in a uh, blog post I put up just a couple of days ago, the injustice of the gun charge against Kyle Rittenhouse. That's linked in the text version of today's content. Instead of that standard jury instruction, however, the judge agreed to accept the jury instruction drafted by the defense that includes as an option the exception that relieves Kyle of criminal liability for that gun possession. It would have been best, I think, for the judge to have dismissed the gun charge in its entirety. But again, this is a judge who values the role of the jury and who is predisposed to give more instructions rather than fewer. But at least with respect to the gun charge, the jury will receive an instruction that, if rationally applied to the facts, should result in an acquittal on count six. Before I do that, I would like to mention the sponsor of today's content, that's CCWSA for Provider of Legal Service Memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. What CCWSA does is promise to pay its members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you've had to shoot somebody in self-defense and they died and you're charged with murder or manslaughter, it's easy to burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. If you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be helpful to have a partner standing behind you with the resources you need to fight that legal battle the way you want it fought, as if the rest of your life depends on it. Because really, it does. I've looked at all the companies that offer similar services, as you might imagine. I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash CCWSafe. And if you do decide to become a member there, you can save 10% off your membership using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash CCWSafe. So let's talk now about the criminal charges and the jury instructions approved for them. So the criminal complaint against Kyle has six counts. Five of those are use of force felony counts. One's the misdemeanor gun possession count. And of course, today the parties argued in court over the specific jury instructions to be read to the jury for each of those counts. The parties also argued over where the jury would be permitted to consider lesser included offenses for a particular complaint. If you're unfamiliar with the concept of lesser included offenses, I do discuss them in a few minutes here. Ultimately, the judge decided upon what final instructions the jury will be read on Monday morning, just before closing arguments, after which the jury will begin to deliberate, applying those jury instructions to the facts of the case as they believe those facts to have been proven or disproven. It is worth noting that the jury can only convict on charges for which they receive a jury instruction. So as you might imagine, the defense was arguing against many of the instructions the state was asking for. Overall, the defense won a few of these arguments and lost a few. As already noted, the big win for the defense was the acceptance of their version of the gun possession jury instruction. That should lead a rational jury to acquit on the gun charge. And the big win for the state was the judge agreeing to instruct the jury on the doctrine of provocation predicated on the state's unicorn drone video and enhanced photos. So what I'll do here is simply list the counts of the criminal complaint uh, in the text version of today's content. I'll also embed the criminal complaint and I'll name the 
number and title of the jury instructions approved for each. Again, in the text version of today's content, each of these jury's instructions is linked to their full text form. And I do encourage you to go read the actual jury instructions. That's the best way to understand how the law will be applied by the jury in this case to arrive at a verdict. So count one is the first degree reckless homicide charge. That's with respect to Joseph Rosenbaum, just a single jury instruction there. It's jury Instruction number 1020, first degree reckless homicide. Count two is the first degree recklessly endangering safety with respect to Richard McGinnis. Two jury instructions there, 1345, first degree reckless endangerment, and 1347, second degree reckless endangerment. Count number three is the first degree intentional homicide charge with respect to Anthony Huber. There are two jury instructions there, 1010, first-degree intentional homicide, and 1016, first-degree intentional homicide self-defense. This is really an imperfect self-defense jury instruction, 1016. Then we have count four, attempted first-degree intentional homicide with respect to Gage Grosskreutz. Here we have three jury instructions, 1070, attempted first-degree intentional homicide, 1072, attempted first-degree intentional homicide self-defense. This is really, again, an imperfect self-defense jury instruction in the attempted context. And jury instruction 1020, first-degree reckless homicide. Count number five is the first-degree recklessly endangering safety charge uh, with respect to jump kick man. And here we have two jury instructions, 1345, first-degree reckless endangerment, and 1347, second-degree reckless endangerment. And finally, we have count six, the possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18 charge. Uh, the standard jury instruction here is normally 2176, uh, but if applied on the facts of this case, because it's an oversimplification of the statutory language, it would certainly result in an unjust conviction of Kyle for reasons I discussed in that recent blog post, the injustice of the gun charge against Kyle Rittenhouse. Again, that's linked in the text version of today's content. Fortunately, 2176 is not the instruction the jury will be given for count six in this trial. Instead, the jury will be given a customized jury instruction drafted by the defense that presumably accounts for Kyle being exempt from the gun possession statute being applied against him. If properly drafted and applied by a rational jury, this customized gun possession instruction should lead to an acquittal on this charge. So those are all the criminal charges and jury instructions. We also, of course, have the self-defense jury instructions. There's three of these, uh, but really two of them benefit the state. So we have the core self-defense jury instruction, which is number 805. And then we have the jury instructions on provocation. Uh, 810 is the simple provocation jury instruction that imposes a duty to retreat before acting in self-defense if someone has provoked the confrontation, the use of force against themselves. And we have jury instruction 815, which is the provocation with intent jury instruction. I believe this will be the core of the state's argument on closing to the jury. Now I'd like to touch upon some legal concepts that you need to understand in order to understand the jury instructions. Uh, one concept is that of intent. So intent is a mental state in which the person intends a particular outcome. Uh, further, we're all considered to have intended the reasonably foreseeable consequences of our actions. Of course, none of us can read minds. You can't read the mind of someone else to know what their intent is. So invariably, intent is inferred from a person's words or conduct. Normally, for example, if you point a gun known to be loaded at someone and pull the trigger, 
it will be inferred that you intended that person deadly injury. In this case, Rittenhouse is charged with intentional homicide with respect to Anthony Huber, that's count three, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz, count four. Then we have the legal concept of recklessness. So several of the criminal charges in this case are based on recklessness. Recklessness can be thought of as an aggravated form of simple negligence. Where negligence only creates civil liability, however, recklessness creates criminal liability. In the case of negligence, we all have a basic legal duty to not cause unjustified harm to others, and we're all presumed to know this. Uh, To illustrate, if you're driving down the road and you glance down for a moment to change your radio stations, and while doing this, your car moves onto the shoulder and takes out somebody's mailbox, your conduct was negligent, and you are liable to pay for the damage caused. Recklessness differs from negligence in both the degree of harm caused or threatened and the mental state of the person causing or threatening the harm. Where negligence arises in the context of really almost any unjustified harm, recklessness generally involves a danger to human life. Also, where a negligent person is merely being careless or thoughtless, the reckless person is actually aware of the risk being created by their conduct and chooses to ignore that risk. To illustrate, if you drink to the point of intoxication, decide to drive your car through town and run over a group of nuns uh, using a pedestrian crosswalk, your conduct is reckless. Everyone knows that driving drunk creates an unjustified risk of death or serious injury to others. And so by driving drunk, you intentionally ignored that risk. Wisconsin law has two different degrees of recklessness, first-degree recklessness and second-degree recklessness. Second-degree recklessness is essentially what I've just described, the creation of an unjustified risk of death and the deliberate disregarding of that risk. First-degree recklessness can be thought of as an aggravated form of second-degree, where second-degree recklessness requires the creation of an unjustified risk of death and the deliberate disregarding of that risk. First-degree recklessness also requires that you acted with an utter disregard for human life. So utter disregard might be best explained with an illustrative example. So imagine you're in the woods and you've brought a rifle to do some target practice. Your target consists of a soup can, which you hang from a tree branch using a string, and you begin shooting at the can. Naturally, both the bullets that strike the can and those that miss continue moving past the can with considerable energy. Unfortunately, a short distance past your target, hidden by a thin strand of trees behind your target, is a school, and one of your bullets strikes and kills a student. Your killing of that student is certainly not an intentional homicide, a murder, because you never had any particular intent towards that student. You you never knew the student existed. The killing, however, is likely criminally reckless. You know that firing bullets at a target with an inadequate backstop means that the rounds will continue downrange with considerable energy until they hit something with sufficient resistance to stop them. If that something is a person, they are likely to die. Guns are inherently dangerous, and it is your responsibility to ensure that you use them in a manner that does not cause unjustifiable danger to others. The enjoyment of recreational target shooting cannot justify a human death. In short, by shooting at a can on a string without an adequate backstop, you know or should know that you are creating unjustified risk of death and intentionally disregarding that risk, the very definition of recklessness.
utter disregard for human life occurs when it is not merely reasonably possible that your recklessness may cause a human death, but highly likely. Imagine that you're shooting at your tin can in the woods again, but this time you know there's a school on the other side of that thin stand of trees. Further, you can hear children in the playground between you and the school building, even get glimpses of them through the trees. Despite this, you shoot at your can anyway, with the same result that one of your bullets strikes and kills a student. Now you're not merely knowingly creating a risk of death and intentionally ignoring that risk. You simply have an utter disregard for the people you know are being placed in danger of dying by your actions. In this case, the charges against Rittenhouse include the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, that's count one in the criminal complaint, the reckless endangering of safety of Richard McGinnis, that's count two, and the reckless endangering of safety of Jump Kick Man, that's count five. All of those counts are premised on first-degree recklessness, arguing that Rittenhouse was not merely reckless, but also showed an utter disregard for human life. Now let's talk about self-defense. Kyle's core legal defense against all the use of force felony charges brought against him. Self-defense is a legal justification or privilege that relieves you of criminal liability for having used force upon another in specific circumstances. At Law Self-Defense, we define those specific circumstances using what we refer to as the five elements of a claim of self-defense. These are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. If you're not familiar with these, I would urge you to download our totally free five elements of self-defense infographic. It's just a PDF download, does not cost a penny. You can get that at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. But those elements are briefly explained. Innocence, that requires that the person claiming self-defense not have been the initial physical aggressor in the confrontation. They didn't start the fight. Imminence requires that the threat you're defending against was either in actual progress or immediately about to occur. Proportionality requires that your defensive force be proportional to the force threatened against you, and particularly that deadly defensive force can be used only to stop a deadly force threat. Avoidance asks whether you have a legal duty to retreat before using deadly force in self-defense, retreat if safely possible. Only 11 states impose a generalized legal duty to retreat in cases of otherwise lawful self-defense, and Wisconsin is not one of those 11, so we can disregard the element of avoidance for purposes of the Rittenhouse trial, importantly, except in the context of provocation, which I'll come back to in a moment. And reasonableness, the fifth and final element, requires that the defender's perceptions, decisions, and actions in self-defense were both subjectively, genuinely believed by the defender and that this belief was also objectively reasonable, meaning that a reasonable and prudent person in the same circumstances would have shared that subjective belief. Now, these five elements are cumulative, meaning that the claim of self-defense is valid only if all the required elements are present. Again, normally in Wisconsin, avoidance is not required, so we're really talking about four elements in that context in an otherwise lawful case of self-defense. The burden is on the prosecution to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, but the prosecution need not disprove beyond a reasonable doubt self-defense in its entirety. He need merely disprove beyond a reasonable doubt any single element of self-defense. Accordingly, each of the required elements of a self-defense claim can be thought of as a target of attack for the prosecutor. If he can disprove any single required element, 
in Wisconsin, the four elements of innocence, eminence, proportionality, or reasonableness, he will have defeated the legal defense of self-defense. If the prosecutor cannot disprove any one of the elements beyond a reasonable doubt, however, then the underlying use of force is deemed to have been justified and the defendant will have zero criminal liability for his use of force. That use of force is simply not a crime. The jury will be instructed that under those circumstances, they must acquit the defendant of the use of force criminal charge in question. Because an undefeated claim of self-defense results in an acquittal and zero legal liability for the defendant, self-defense is said to be a perfect defense. Now, remarkably, after eight days of trial testimony, the prosecution has introduced little, if any, substantive evidence that attacks any of the four required elements of self-defense under Wisconsin law, and certainly not anything like the evidence required to disprove any of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. By the way, the self-defense jury instruction that will be given here is the standard instruction for self-defense, 805 the core self-defense jury instruction uh, in the context of deadly force. And that instruction, of course, will be read to the jury Monday morning. Now, let me talk a bit about imperfect self-defense. There is a variant of self-defense recognized by many states, among which is Wisconsin, where a self-defense is a perfect defense that allows for an acquittal and zero legal liability. Imperfect self-defense does not allow for an acquittal. Instead, imperfect self-defense can only mitigate what would otherwise qualified as a first-degree intentional murder to some lesser killing charge, second-degree intentional murder, manslaughter, first-degree reckless murder, and so forth. Imperfect self-defense can be thought of as a claim of self-defense that's almost complete, but not quite, just short of perfect. Wisconsin law recognizes several flavors of imperfect self-defense that can mitigate a first-degree intentional homicide to a lesser killing charge. For example, imagine a defendant who used deadly force in self-defense, and per the element of reasonableness, perfect self-defense requires the defendant had both a genuine subjective belief in the need to use deadly force in self-defense and that this subjective belief was objectively reasonable. Where the defendant has that genuine subjective belief, but the belief is objectively unreasonable, however, he has failed the element of reasonableness and therefore does not qualify for perfect self-defense. If that lack of objective reasonableness is the only defect in his otherwise valid claim of self-defense, he can argue that what would otherwise have been deemed a first-degree intentional homicide ought to be mitigated to a second-degree intentional homicide on the basis of imperfect self-defense. In this case, Rittenhouse is charged with the first-degree intentional homicide of Anthony Huber. If the jury were to find that Rittenhouse had an otherwise valid self-defense justification for his shooting of Huber, except that his use of deadly defensive force was objectively unreasonable, they could acquit him of the charge of first-degree intentional murder and instead find him guilty of second-degree intentional homicide under the doctrine of imperfect self-defense. The jury instruction that addresses this concept of imperfect self-defense under Wisconsin law is 1016, and of course, that's linked in the text version of today's content, and it will be read to the jury on Monday morning. And now, a really important part of today's content, the talk about the doctrine of provocation, because I think this will be at the core of the state's legal argument against Kyle Rittenhouse's claim of self-defense, and I think it'll be their only legal argument that they have. 
Um, I mentioned earlier there are four core elements of self-defense under Wisconsin law that are possible targets of attack by the prosecution. Attacks on Kyle's core claim of self-defense. Those are innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness. I also mentioned the fifth element of self-defense, avoidance. It's not generally applicable in Wisconsin in that there's no generalized legal duty to retreat before you can act in otherwise lawful self-defense. There is, however, what might be thought of as a backdoor avenue of attack on self-defense, and that becomes available where the defendant can be said to have provoked the attack against which he then defended himself. Now, generally, I treat this doctrine of provocation uh, as a facet of the element of innocence, but Wisconsin law breaks it out as if it were a separate element, so that's how I'll treat it here. I noted earlier that over eight days of trial testimony, the state has offered little or no evidence attacking any of the four core elements of Rittenhouse's claim of self-defense, and certainly not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. They did not do so for the perfectly good reason that they have no such evidence. Instead, the state is putting all its chips on attacking Kyle's claim of self-defense through the legal doctrine of provocation. If they can prove provocation beyond a reasonable doubt, then Kyle arguably becomes effectively ineligible to claim self-defense. Specifically, the state is arguing that as Kyle approached the four cars in which Rosenbaum was concealed at the corner of the 63rd Street car source parking lot, that Kyle the state claims, raised his gun and pointed it at Joshua Zeminski. This is why the state fought so hard to get the unicorn drone video and enhanced images into evidence as purported evidence of this conduct by Kyle. This pointing of the rifle, the state claims, provoked Rosenbaum into a use of force in defense of Zeminski. And as a result of that act of provocation by Kyle, uh, Kyle should be unable to justify his use of force upon Rosenbaum's provoked attack as lawful self-defense. Importantly, there are two types of provocation under Wisconsin law, each with different conditions and implications, simple provocation and provocation with intent. Simple provocation is engaging in unlawful conduct that would be reasonably likely to provoke a violent response. If that occurs, the person who provoked the violent response does not have a privilege of justifying their use of force against that response as self-defense unless they meet additional conditions not usually required for self-defense under Wisconsin law. Specifically, the person who engaged in simple provocation has effectively acquired a legal duty to retreat, that element of avoidance that would not normally be a legal duty under Wisconsin law in the case of an otherwise lawful act of self-defense. Before the simple provoker can justify their defense against the provoked violence as legally justified, they must withdraw from the confrontation and effectively communicate their withdrawal to the other party. The jury instruction that addresses simple provocation under Wisconsin law is 810, and the jury instruction will be read to the jury on Monday morning. The second form of provocation is more problematic for Kyle, however, and that's provocation with intent. This occurs when the defendant not only provoked the violent response, but did so with the deliberate intent of then having an excuse to use deadly force against the person provoked. Importantly, the provoker with intent cannot regain self-defense by withdrawal in communication, as can the simple provoker. On the other hand, of course, the state must prove that malicious intent to provoke a fight to have an excuse to use deadly force against the other person beyond a reasonable doubt. 
The jury instruction that addresses provocation with intent under Wisconsin law is 815. Of course, that will be read to the jury on Monday morning. 810 and 815 being read to the jury are the big wins today for the state in the jury instruction battle. Let me talk now for a moment about lesser included offenses. So many criminal offenses come in several degrees, as we've already seen with respect to recklessness coming in both a standard second degree form and an aggravated first degree form where there is an utter disregard for human life. Between the two forms, all the criminal elements are identical except for the addition of utter disregard to the first degree recklessness. If a defendant is charged with first-degree recklessness and the jury finds that all the elements of that crime have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt except for utter disregard for human life, well, without the utter disregard, the defendant can't be found guilty of first-degree recklessness. He still, however, even without the utter disregard, meets all the conditions for being found guilty of second-degree recklessness. The elements are the same there as in first-degree, except there's no requirement for the utter disregard. In such a case, the crime of second-degree recklessness is said to be a lesser-included offense of first-degree recklessness. In this case, Rittenhouse is charged with several charges based on recklessness, all in the first degree, claiming utter disregard for human life, including the shooting death of Rosenbaum, the endangerment of Richard McGinnis, and the endangerment of Jump Kick Man. To all these charges of recklessness, Kyle has raised the legal defense of self-defense, so for each charge— If the jury finds the state has failed to disprove any one element of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury will be instructed to acquit Rittenhouse of that charge. In other words, recklessness requires the creation of an unjustified risk of death, but if the death was the result of lawful self-defense, the risk created was justified and therefore not a crime. Of course, if self-defense is found to have been disproven beyond a reasonable doubt, then Rittenhouse will be found guilty of the charge, but guilty to what degree? Both first and second degree recklessness require that Rittenhouse created an unjustified risk of death and ignored that risk, but first degree also requires that element of utter disregard for human life. If the jury is considering a charge of first degree recklessness and finds it has been proven uh, with the exception of the element for utter disregard, they can acquit Rittenhouse of the first degree charge and instead find him guilty of the lesser included offense of second degree recklessness. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you on this topic today. Remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself to make sure you know the law, so you're hard to convict. I'll definitely see you all Monday morning for the uh, start of court proceedings, the instruction of the jury, the closing arguments, and the entry of the jury into deliberations, at which point we'll go into jury watch, and perhaps we'll have some bonus content for all of you over the weekend as well. Until then, I remain Attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.